This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The information presented on this program is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information presented does not create any type of relationship between the hosts and guests and the listening audience. Please consult an appropriate professional for guidance about your concerns. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large and cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Look, following a one-year hiatus, actually it's one, it's been two. Ah, it's two. Well, it's because of COVID. You know, remember that COVID thing? Yeah. Well, the Mississippi Book Festival is back, and it's going to be better than ever. Dubbed the Literary Lawn Party, this year's book festival boasts a whopping 172 well-known authors. What would you call that? Would that be a gaggle? Jermaine, a yeah, gaggle of authors. A, that's a lot of them. It's not like a murder of crows, <laughs> but it'd be a gaggle of authors. I right. Think, well, 172. That's pretty impressive. And 40 panel discussions, uh, book signings and more. And you know what? Just because I'm incredibly lazy, I thought I would get the two authors that I will be moderating on their panel in today. And I'm excited about it because uh, we got two fantastic authors who've got two incredible books. And I can't wait to have them talk about it a little bit here in just a second. We've got Kevin Maurer, who's... You probably became aware of him um, when, the, after the Bin Laden raid, uh, Mark Owen, one of the Navy SEALs, and that was his uh, name at the time, uh, they came out with a book, It's No Easy Day, it was just a fantastic book, and so talked about that, and that's kind of when Kevin got on my radar, I'm a big fan of his, and he's going to be on with us in just a second, and then we're going to have James M. Scott, and James has been on the show before, James is um, an incredible his research is always really good. He's a Pulitzer finalist uh, for one of his books. He did Target, Target Tokyo. Uh, but James was kind of people that really makes you just feel like you're there. And so I can't wait to talk to him, too. His new book is called Black Snow, which is about the firebombing of Tokyo during World War II. Both these books are about World War II. The panel's about the, the air war in World War II. And because I am a middle-aged dad, uh, I'm just very qualified when it comes to talking about World War II, because that's what we middle-aged dads like to talk about. But anyway, and I think a lot of what we're going to be talking about today um, is very relevant to what's going on with world events today, too. So anyway, great show today. Thank you for listening. We got a great conversation we're going to do on the tail end of the show, so stick around for that. So, But with that, let's t- uh, quickly, let me just touch base about the uh, book festival itself. We'll be coming up on Saturday at the state capitol on the grounds. <clears throat> um If you have not been, it is incredible. It's electric. You get to hear uh, so many different authors. I mean, one of them, for instance, Alice Walker is going to be there. I mean, Jermaine's like bobbing her head around. That is definitely the one that I... Yeah, you're pretty pumped about that. Yes. I can see your head in there like a bobblehead doll. You're (laughs) just going to town. That's my amen, yes. (laughs) I mean, and and it's such a wonderful event. I mean, seriously, I, I remember one year I was on a panel, so I got to go into the author's lounge, right? So the author's lounge is right off of the, the hallway, kind of tucked away. They have danishes, which I like because I love me some danishes. 
And so we're, I'm sitting there between Richard Ford, author Richard Ford, Angie Thomas, um, Bill Dunlap sitting over there. I mean, it's just all these people that are just incredibly talented, incredibly gifted. And I'm sitting there eating the Danishes. It's just, it was just like Nirvana. So That's but, how it's supposed to be. Yeah. No, it is. And, and like I said, uh, if you can't go it's from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., it's free and it's open to the public. There are, like I said, there are going to be panels, over 40-plus panels around. Ours will be at noon. It will be in the old Supreme Court chambers. And it will be on C-SPAN as well. Oh, I know. You're right. You're jealous right now because I'm so. I'm, I'm so. Oh, bucket list. I'm going to be on C-SPAN, right? Get it. Yeah, being a politics junkie. In the, I think I've had a few of my cartoons on C-SPAN. I personally have never been on there before, so I'm, I'm kind of pumped. Right. That. Your signature was there, though. It's right there. Yeah, well, nobody can read that, so, which is on purpose. That way, you know, nobody comes to my house. Oh, right. I like your cartoon. They're not funny. You, know, you so made fun silly. of my uncle. Get that a lot. Anyway, um, but like I said, Alice Walker will be there, so Jermaine's happy. And it'll be a great. But anyway, so like I said, Saturday, uh, our panel's at noon, but it starts at nine. It's going to be a great day. And it's in different areas around the Capitol complex, too. So it's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Without further ado, our first guest is award-winning journalist, a three-time New York Times bestselling co-author. His books include the massively successful No Easy Day that I mentioned before about the inside story of the Bin Laden raid. It was co-written with former Navy SEAL Mark Owen. For the last 11 years, Maurer's been also worked as a freelance writer covering war, politics, and general interest stories. His writing has been published in GQ, Men's Journal, The Daily Beast, The Washington Post, and numerous other publications. But the book that we're talking about today is called Damn Lucky. And... um, Kevin, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, I'm just, I'm thrilled to get to talk to you. I look forward to meeting uh, you, and I really look forward to Saturday. Oh, I do too. I'm looking forward to coming down there. I was down in Jackson uh, as part of the book tour for Damn Lucky, and I, I really liked it. I was only there an evening, so I'm really looking forward to exploring the city a little bit, and I was kind of really honored to get get a chance to come down. Yeah, it's a, it's a you know, I've been here 25 years. I thought I'd be here for two. You know, it's kind of like the Hotel California of cities. But uh, Mississippi's history is particularly interesting, and its aviation history is really interesting, too. Uh, For instance, Hap Arnold, which, you know, played a a small role Mm -hmm. in your book, he actually made uh, Jackson the site of the Dutch Flyers, which when they got run out of out of their country because of the German invasion, they came here to train. And so we actually have a cemetery here that has a lot of Dutch Flyers there that had training crashes and so forth. And then, you know, the first air-to-air refueling was here at Key Field with the Key Brothers. So, I mean, there's just a lot of interesting things. But damn lucky, by the way, when I walked into Lemuria Books, uh, where you did one of your book signings, John, the owner, thrust the book into my hand, and he said, buy this now and read it tonight. He said it's that good. <laughs> so you you got really high praise on it. And when I read it and I finished it, um, number one, I'm just jealous that you got to know uh, John Lucky Luckadoo. Uh, and tell everybody who he was or is, because that's what that, that's actually the best part of the story is, is that he's still with us. But what an incredible human being. Yeah, no, John, John's a special guy. I mean, if I, if you created a guy uh, and said you're writing a book about Lucky Luckadoo, uh, nobody would believe you. Um, he's a hundred year old bomber pilot still living in uh, still living in Dallas, Texas, uh, member of the hundredth bomb group. Uh, which is going to be the focus of Masters of the Air, the new uh, Spielberg, Tom Hanks uh, miniseries. Um, so basically he's, he's a, uh, well, he's a survivor of the, of the air war, the kind of bloodiest campaign in World War II, flew 25 missions over Nazi Germany. And, and what the book does is, is chronicles his, 
his career in, in World War II. But what I think it does more than that is it, it puts a human face on probably a, a war that has so many, you know, it's a very technical war, lots of machines, and I think sometimes the humanity of that war gets lost. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big fan of airplanes. I love drawing them and have since I was a kid. And the B-17 is always been one of my favorites in Krell aircraft. But a lot of my knowledge of what the 8th Air Force went through over the, you know, five miles up over Germany was watching the old newsreels. And you would see these B-17s tumbling out of, you know, out of formation, going spiraling to earth. But when you read Lucky's account, you realize that there are 10 souls on that plane and you realize that they had been freezing to death for the last five hours and they were, you know, had to go to the bathroom in a condom and it had froze. And so you, the thing about John's book is like, I mean, Lucky's book, just say Lucky, is the fact that the fact that he's even alive today, he's lucky to be alive at 100. But the fact that he even survived the 25 missions is nothing short of a miracle. Well, especially in 43, where, uh, you know, when Doolittle shows up in 44, the loop off has been pretty beat up and he turns the fighters on him. But in 43... You know, the Americans were still trying to figure this out. Was the precision daylight bombing worthwhile? And uh, and Lucky's fighting the Luftwaffe almost at full strength at this point. And and they're all, they're, you know, they're veterans. You know, they had fought on the Eastern Front. They had fought in the Battle of Britain. Uh, so they, you know, Lucky was, you know, really a band of amateurs. The, the Americans had really no idea what they were doing. I remember I, uh, we were talking about Lucky's first mission. And I said to him, well, did you go around the base and talk to some folks? Uh, try to get a sense of what you were facing. And he said, who was I going to talk to? None of us had ever seen it or been in, you know, in combat yet. So if you think about, you know, hundreds of American lives at stake, none of them have any idea what's going on in the Germans, you know, had years at that point of, uh, of combat. Experience. Oh, you think about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he had what a hundred hours of training and, you know, his first real training flight more or less was when the captain, he was the co the co-pilot when the pilot ended up with a venereal disease and was so sick, he could barely. So lucky, had to fly to England across the Atlantic by him, you know, literally almost by himself because his captain's out, you know, I mean, and you think about it, they were literally, like you said, going up against total professionals. And on top of that, they had great equipment. The Germans had incredible aircraft. The Falkworth 190 was just, just a killer aircraft. And then they had probably the best anti-aircraft gun too. So they were flying into the teeth of it. And, you you know the, the the books outlines each mission the different dangers he had i honestly don't know how they got up the next morning and went back up into the air i don't either and that was something we talked a lot about we talked a lot about like how do you climb back into that aircraft and i think part of it is guilt in that you don't want to be the guy that lets your team down and so that that alone gets you back into that aircraft and i think part of it too was lucky sort of was a fatalist he was pretty sure he wasn't going to make it or or didn't really stress or focus too much on it. And I think they just came to terms. I mean, they came to terms with the idea that they may they may die at any time. That you're basically signing up for the Eighth of War, so basically signing up for your own funeral. You, you think about luck and how that plays into it. And a lot of it was dumb luck. Because, I mean, obviously, a flak shell could have gone off and taken the plane down or could have lost two engines and not been able to hold into the formation and they could have been taken. You think about all the dumb luck opportunities, but think about Lucky and the thing that I think I really came to admire about him um, by the end of the book. And it, like I said, there is the last page where he wrote something in there and I'm not going to spoil it, but I, I stood up and saluted. But the thing about him, he made his own luck a lot of times too. And I think one of the ways he did it was when he was in the literal hell of combat that he could focus on his job, making sure what he did. And there was one, I think it was over Bern. I'm not quite sure. The mission where they were flying on the bottom part of the formation. And 
literally their their whole squadron nearly been decimated. They were down to like six planes. And for those who don't understand that, with the B-17, they had to fly really close together or they would have been taken out. But he had the wherewithal to think under stress like that and say, okay, no, I need to hook up with this other, the, the other unit. And that, and that was the only way that they survived. So a lot of times when Lucky would survive, it was because of his own wits. Yeah, look, I mean, and, and Lucky won't, won't tell you this, but Lucky was a really good pilot and he was really good at his job and he cared deeply for the men that served with him. And he took his responsibility of making sure that when he was in charge of that formation, or when he was in charge of the aircraft, that those guys are going to get back, uh, get back safely. And so, you know, that, that Bremen mission, the reason why we focus so much on it is that that was the first mission that he, first and only, to be honest, mission he felt like he wasn't going to survive. And so that's why I really wanted to slow it down. It's funny you bring up James Scott's book, uh, Target Tokyo. I, wa- I, list- I read that right before I started writing Sam because I wanted to hear how the masters do it and read how they did it. And, and what he does really well is he breaks down every plane as yeah. you start to attack Tokyo and that you get a sense of what every plane is doing. So I took a lot of that from him uh, and tried to, but that's what, for the Bremen mission, I really wanted to slow that down and really give you a sense of, of from, you know, beat by beat what it was like to go through that mission. Oh, that's the thing. I mean, you could almost smell the, the hydraulic fluid on it. I mean, you you really captured that moment. And, you know, it's not many uh, writers now that actually can get a primary source for a World War II book. So just being able to get, and the other thing too, he's 100 years old and he's sharper than I am right now. Um, that's what just blows my mind about it. <laughs> Yeah, he's a he's an interesting cat. I've I've had a chance to see him a couple times now. Heard him speak, and and you know basically I'm I'm a Robin to his Batman. I mean, he really does some amazing. He's really sharp. He and he's really got a real sense of what what he's what he wants to talk about. I mean, I saw uh, the book kind of came from a Q and A where I I was able to to see you know see him tell his story a little bit, and and I was sort of fascinated by the way even in a Q and A that kind of charisma came through. Uh, so the chance that, you know, the fact that no one wrote the story before I got there is, is sort of my damn lucky moment in a way. Yeah, really. That's just the, the fact that you literally just reached out to him and said, no, there's, cause you wanted to get by the book and there wasn't a book and you exactly. said, well, well, then let me write it. Um, and you know, that's, you obviously Mark Owen, Mark Bissonette, you know, you worked with him on that. And I was going to ask you because. You've now worked with two people that were incredibly gifted at what they did, you know, and so forth. And a lot of people say, you know, our generation isn't up to what the greatest generation did. And even Lucky says he feels like that we're kind of squandering kind of what the gift that they gave us. And when I read that and I feel like I need to step up my game a little bit because I don't want to disappoint him after reading this book. But talk about that a little bit. What I mean, what were the differences between the two men that you were when you dealt with them? Because you walked literally with two people that have, are honest to God heroes. It's interesting. I think there's there's there's, there's more similarity, similarities than not. Uh, you know, they all have the same sense of service, the same sense of team. Uh, you know, politics even in World War II go out the window uh, when the shooting starts. You know, you want to be there and you're really serving with the guy to your left and right. And I think all of that's universal to, to veterans. I think you find the same thing in Sparta. Um, you know, when, when warriors get together and have a mission, they're going to die trying to accomplish it. And, and the, you know, the cardinal sin is letting your team down. And I think that that's universal. The, the biggest difference I found, honestly, and, and, and like you said, I've had the luck of getting a primary source in World War II, but the biggest, biggest difference is, you know, Mark Owen can tell you what happened on the Bin Laden raid. 
you know, cinematically, you know, yeah. where Lucky can't and Lucky doesn't. Uh, and that's what I thought was fascinating. Uh, Lucky is very matter of fact, you know, I flew over Bremen. We dropped all our bombs. I didn't think I was going to make it. I did. All right, next mission. Uh, and, and so it took me a long time to really dig some of these details out. Uh, but I, I kind of equate it to the fact that, you know, Mark Owen and the rest of us grew up on movies. But we're used to telling stories through imagery. And, and Mark Owen can do that really well. Lucky grew up, you know, radio. Yeah. And so they don't, he doesn't tell it with the same kind of imagery. It's the only theory I can get, and somebody smarter than me needs to come up with that. But other than that, I think, that, you know, the idea of, of, the, of the service member and the, and the idea of the honor and, and serving, I think it's universal. I interviewed uh, a Marine who was both on Iwo Jima and he was actually on patrol six months after Nagasaki. It was in, in just incredible. And he was, once again, he was 97, 98, and very sharp on that. And, you know, it, I was talking to him a little bit and I said, you're very open about it and you talk about it now. And he said, I didn't really want to talk about it up until recently. And I realized I'm one of the last people who can talk about it. So I'm going to tell people what we went through because I feel like that's important. But, you know, the thing about Lucky and it kind of you saw that when he came home and he's in church and everybody wanted him to stand up and talk about it. And he's like, no, thanks. And you knew he was dealing with PTSD. But I think honestly, it, I think it, I can say this just from reading the book and from what I've read about him, that his wife, Bobby, probably saved him. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And he'd tell you that, too. Uh, you know, meeting her uh, saved his life. Meeting her gave him the, the stability he needed. Because remember, when he comes back and he's in Miami, he's, he's sort of a dumpster fire. Yeah. You know, he's really struggling with some survivor's guilt. He's struggling with, you know, the trauma that he went through. And, uh, you know, I think meeting her saves his life. And the reason why we have him now uh, and in the and in the shape he's in is very much because of Bobby. So she really, you know, in some ways, she's the hero of the book. Yeah. Oh, de de definitely. I mean, it was – and you could tell, and I love the fact that, you know, her dad did not want them to get married, you know. But obviously, she was just kind of like, sorry, Dad, you're just going to have to get over it, you know. And of course, he. I, I love that he tried to get Lucky court-martialed. Um, I thought that was <laughs> that. That was pretty funny. But but that's the thing. You know, you think about it. He's Lucky stood up to his superiors at least twice that I remember in the book. And once again, he just made his own luck because the fact that you know he was going to do what he thought was right. And um, that just says a lot about who he is and who his character was. And just even judging, you you just touched on his dad a little bit, but it sounds like his dad wasn't a kind of sit around and feel sorry for him kind of guy too. He lost everything in the depression and he got it all back. You know, it just sounds like that's what Lucky grew up with. Mm, I think so too. I mean, I think his dad, his dad instilled a, a work ethic and, and sort of a never say die attitude that I think, you know, translates to when he's facing the, you know, the Luftwaffe over Germany. Um, but I mean, he grew up too during the depression. I mean, he, his childhood wasn't easy and, and his father had a really complicated relationship with his family in particular with uh, his older son. So I think that, that, that actually contributes a little bit to the, to Lucky's resilience and, and the way that he can tap in because if you, you know, I don't, I don't want to ruin the book either, but, you know, this isn't a this isn't a really this isn't a happy story. I mean, he when he gets to the hundred bomb group, he's looked at as a jinx because of the way that they they rolled in the new co pilots. And so, you know, his his path to the war is is rocky and hard. And, and the fact that he was resilient enough to one overcome that, and then two then to turn around and face the the, the Nazi war machine, I think is is just a testament to uh, to his character. Well, that's uh, and and yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. I was just saying, I, I, 
I want to tell everybody who's listening right now that the reason why this book, it's incredibly well written. You did a great job on it. And because the narrative's really good and it's, it's hard to put down. That said, this isn't a traditional World War II book in the sense that what we are going through right now as a country and what we're going through as a world, it is actually kind of in a way a self-help book in the sense that you see a guy who's dealing with stuff that we can, can't even imagine of dealing with. And how he dealt with it is just literally a master class on how to deal with going through hell and not stopping. You could, I couldn't have said it better. Wow. Well, good. So you're not going to punch me when I see you on Friday. That's good. That, that, that works out great. Not even a little bit. I, I'm so excited to be down there for the for the festival when uh, when I was down in the spring and they, and they mentioned it. I, I you know and then I sat and sat with him. So I'm really looking forward to sitting with him too. Yeah. So I, I I'm beyond excited about being down there and spending the day. Plus, I mean, you're you're letting me come down uh, to a really cool city uh, to talk about books and stories and meet cool people. I mean, it's not work. Yeah, I'm going to touch up those, those that drawing I did that I showed you and kind of get all the markings and everything correctly in the plane. And, you know, I I intentionally left the tail gunner off the back because I know Lucky does not like tail gunners, and so I left that off the, on there. But I'm going to make sure that you get a, you and him both get copies of that. And uh, I'm just excited about you here. You're going to love James, too. Uh, I got to know him like, a few years ago online after I think it may have been Target Tokyo and just have become a huge fan of him both personally and professionally, too. So uh, we're going to have fun. It's, it's, that hour is going to go by real fast. No, I think so, too. I'm looking forward to it. In fact, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way, I'm sad that Lucky couldn't come. But um, if he did come, you and I and James just would have gone out and sat in the audience and just let t- Lucky talk for an hour, I think. Absolutely. I, I have a feeling he probably would have not had any problem doing that as well. He's like you said, he's a hundred years old. He's still doing okay. Right. I mean, that's pretty amazing. No, he's doing well. Oh, yeah, that- he's, uh, he's holding up pretty good. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, I think he's, uh, it's a t- I mean, look, uh, the only thing is I talked to him last week, uh, they've had a little bit of an outbreak of COVID. So he's careful though, but overall still strong. Uh, and uh, for his birthday uh, this, this year, everybody gave him scotch, and so he's got enough scotch. He said he's got 10 years worth of scotch to drink, uh, so he'll be around a while. Oh, yeah. No, he's he's good. In fact, um, if I were you, I would figure out a way to go see him if he's got 10 years worth of scotch. Facts, <laughs> yeah. I definitely need to get down there. Hey, Lucky, I made you famous, man. You know, give me a bottle of scotch. That'd be great. And the book has done really well, though. Congratulations on that. Um, what you working on now? Uh, I'm working on another World War II book for the same publisher. Uh, I'm doing a book about Jerry Sage, who um, is the character that allegedly Steve McQueen's character in uh, in The Great Escape of Jason. Oh, that's great. I know it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. Um, man, so that, that'll be a great book, too. I don't think they make a movie. I was... Uh, you, you mentioned Masters of the Air. That's been in the works for like six million years. So I'm glad to hear that that's moving forward. And I'm glad that was the first thing I thought when I read the book. I was like, well, this right here would have been perfectly fine to make the miniseries out of, you know, because you would have gotten that great first person, you know, account. Almost like Eugene Sledge with, you know, the, with the old breed, that book. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, you're going to see the Brennan mission. Yeah. In there. Uh, good. Um, good. Yeah, I know what. I think. Yeah, with James, we're going to be talking a lot about you know Curtis LeMay and everything too. So that'll that'll be fun, um, talking about his role and, and both your 
book and then of course his book too so that'll be great so i tell you what i've enjoyed this this has been a lot of fun um like i said you fly safe we're gonna feed you well and uh, show you a good time down here because that's what we do in mississippi i can't wait thank you so much for having me man thanks for joining us today too and like i said i look forward to meeting you and we will uh, talk soon kevin at one point referred referred to our guest as a master and I'm not one to disagree. I'm a big fan of his writing and his books and I've gotten to know him a little bit thanks to Twitter, uh, which, you know, sometimes is a scary way to get to know people, Twitter. But uh, I definitely am a big fan of James M. Scott. He's with us today. His new book is coming out, I guess, any second now. It's Black Snow. It is about Curtis LeMay, the firebombing of Tokyo, and then the road leading to the atomic bomb. James, good to have you back on the show. Marshall, it's great to be back with you, man. I'm super excited to come back uh, down to Mississippi and connect in person this uh, this weekend with you and with Kevin and with all the other readers out there in Jackson. So super excited. That'd be great. I, like I was telling Kevin, I said, you're going to just enjoy it because there's just such a big smorgasbord. And not only fans of people who love books, but also you get to meet so many different authors. And uh, I know you've done the book book thing the tour and festivals and so forth before this one just has a different feel and it's always been a lot of fun i'm just glad we can have it again you know i mean we had to take a little bit of a hiatus but uh, we're gonna have a good time and, and i don't know if you caught any of the last uh, interview with with kevin but that was really a lot of fun i have a feeling that we're gonna have a blast oh absolutely no I, i'm in like like you I'm so, I'm so glad we're back doing events in person and whatnot i mean even if it means i have to wear socks again and uh you know, know. flip flops and all that I don't know about you, but I literally, I'm down to like one pair of pants that fit. I mean, like, because I've been wearing shorts, you know, stretchy waist pants. I'm like, oh, you know, so, yeah, this is, this is. Oh, right. With you. And I don't know about you. I get dog, I get texts from my dog. Where are you? I miss you, you know, because I'm not at home as much as I used to be. So it's rough. Um, Congratulations. Like I said, I know what you've been doing for the last two or three years. Um, Been definitely diving into this one. And, you know, I, I loved, I think we talked the last time about your process and the fact that I just picture you sitting in the library of Congress doing this research. And if anybody's ever been to the library of Congress, the hall where you, you sit and they bring you the stuff that you're researching is one of the most gorgeous places in the world. And you're going to find the Mississippi capital kind of the same feel, but I, I'm kind of, excuse me, envious of your life, except I know my limitations and I would never be able to do a great book on you. What made you decide to do this book? particularly on this topic because you your last book was rampage it was incredibly powerful and at times painful um accounting of the battle of manila uh it's hard to go from something that emotional into something very emotional what made you decide to take the sleep yeah you know well, it's it's interesting so marshall i think we you and i met after you had read my previous book target tokyo which is about jimmy doolittle and his raid on tokyo in april of 1942 and and so I was kind of interested. I, I loved that book. I loved that story of the Doolittle Raid. And I really kind of wanted to sort of pick up almost like a sequel to that. And, and, and that's what Black Snow really is. I mean, it really, this is the first, this sort of picks up the sort of the air campaign against the Japanese homeland for the first time after Doolittle's raid. And so it looks at 44 and 45 with, with a big focus, of course, on Curtis LeMay and his decision to firebomb Tokyo. But I, I, you know, it was just a story that I felt like there was, there was more to tell there, and uh, and like the Doolittle Raid, you know, it had it had interesting leaders in the form of uh, Curtis LeMay and Haywood Hansel and, and, and Hap Arnold. It had a uh, you know a huge effect on the outcome of the war, um, and, and and so it was just a, a lot of those different things uh, that sort of brought me back to wanting to tell the story of the uh, of, of this campaign. You know, and I think 
it was fascinating because that first mission, uh, when the B-29s went up on Haywood Hansel, I think it was his, or it may have been when Curtis. Yep. But anyway, that was like the first time they'd been bombed since the Doolittle raid, you know, before. It was exactly. a whole, whole lot different airplane and a whole lot different scenario coming in. And Japan was in a lot different place, too. Um, because of, you know, the war had finally come to the Japanese, even though the propaganda hadn't let them know that yet, uh, but that you're still, you know, the Japanese people. And that's what you do so beautifully in this book is that it isn't just a, you're just telling it from one perspective. You're literally telling it in a 360 degree view from the ground, from the sky, from the perspective of different, from people on the ground, from children, from adults, from bombers. You talk about Haywood Hansel and, and Curtis LeMay. So you have two different leaders. And, and I love this as a leadership thing that they were so different. One was a planner. One was an operator, which is a huge difference, you know, when it comes to leading bombers into combat. But the, that's almost an interesting story in itself is Curtis LeMay, who I always envisioned as being a character out of Dr. Strangelove. And, the you know, and. Now, there was a previous book called Bomber Mafia that was done by Malcolm Gladwell that kind of tells a story. But what you managed to do was made me understand why Curtis LeMay was Curtis LeMay and why he ended up doing the things that he did as a commander on the end. Because literally he grew up to the point where if he as a child, because of his father, didn't get out and go fishing, the family would have starved. Exactly. And yeah, and that's the thing. Is, is LeMay is uh... – I think people tend to look at him solely through the lens of sort of the latter part of his career, which is, you know, in Washington and sort of when he, he, um, during the Vietnam era and whatnot. And, uh, and without, without, and, and, and unfortunately that kind of minimizes the huge role that he actually had during World War II and that he was a true innovative commander. And, and it grew out of, and, and his leadership like that grew out of two things as you touched on. One was that he grew up incredibly poor, uh, his mother had the highest education in the family, and she'd only made it to the eighth grade. I mean, he'd learned at a young age that if if he wanted something in life, he could only depend on himself. And number two, he had a really – he had – when he put himself through school working all night in a steel mill, he studied engineering. So he had a practical mind and was a problem solver. And so that sort of dogged work ethic and that desire to be a problem solver is what really made him so successful during World War II. And first, of course, in the European theater. Where he really, you know, he comes over there in, um, in 1942 and he helps design uh, new formations that, that are far better and for the B-17s at that point. He sort of tackles the problem of, you know, German anti-aircraft fire. And as a result of all this, he really becomes one of the, the European theater's top combat commanders. Uh, so much so when you go through his personnel file, and this is one of the things I love just going through there, is there was a, a, a commendation, a um, efficiency report on him done by Jimmy Doolittle. Oh, wow. Of course, you know, a yeah. target Tokyo fame who sort of yeah. says, to, you know, who writes, you know, look, this is one of our best combat commanders of the war. And so he, he, he takes that winning experience in Europe, and then he comes over, and again, to the specific theater where, once again, he's got a problem solve. He's got to figure out how do we get around Japan's horrible weather and these clouds? And what, how do we get around the jet streams? I mean, how do we make this new weapon, the B-29 bomber, successful against the Japanese. And so, and so, yeah, and that's kind of like, and that's one of the things I really liked about the story is much like Target Tokyo, you know, you had Jimmy Doolittle who was trying to problem solve how you go about this crazy mission of bombing Tokyo in 1942. You have Curtis LeMay doing the same type of thing a couple of years later, looking at how do we, how do we successfully prosecute this war against Japan, given all these problems that we've got, weather, a new airplane, jet streams, things of that nature? 
you know, we were talking, I was talking with Kevin, of course, about Lucky, and Lucky was flying a B-17, which came out in 1935, and by the time, you know, Lucky flew it in 1943, the bugs were out of it. The B-29 was this huge, literally the biggest expenditure of the war. It was Hap Arnold's baby, and yeah. they, they, you know, it literally came from the drawing board to the, you know, into combat with hardly anything in between. So they were literally trying to work all the bugs out of it. It had engines that were wonky that are still wonky. If they, in fact, I know they replaced it on Fifi with new engines. Um, but, you know, literally it was like LeMay, and then, of course, they stick LeMay in, in India and in China, which that was a no-win situation too. So it, it, you're right, and I think that's what made him such a compelling character was that, oh, his B-17s in Europe are not hitting the bomb things, and he figured out that they're starting to fly around the flak, and he realized he, he goes and gets a textbook that he saved from college and sits up yeah. all night and does the math and figures out there's no way that they're going to get hit by flak anymore if they're flying. You know, there's, that was the kind of stuff that he did, and it was, it was, it was kind of interesting to, to see that he was like that. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the things that people don't realize. I mean, LeMay did all this at great personal sacrifice. I mean, one of the things, you know, when I went through his letters, you know, during the war, I mean, he spent you know, the entire war fighting either in Europe or in the Pacific. And, and a theme that comes out over and over and over again in his letters is how tired he is because he's working all the time. And he never gets, you know, he's got to, people forget, you know, at this point, he's in his 30s. He's young. He's got a young daughter at home, and he goes back home to visit at one point. He's been gone so long that she insists on him coming out and sitting on the front porch with her, even though it's this bitter, cold winter night. And he realizes afterwards, after talking to his wife, that the whole reason his daughter wanted him out on the porch is that all the neighborhood children could see that she actually had a father. Oh, wow. Because he was gone so long. And so that's what, you know, he gives tremendously of himself and his family and whatnot in order to be able to fight this war, because in, in, in the Pacific War is a far greater problem for him than the European War. I mean, he's got new bases that are still, you know, they're still being developed. He's got massive distances to fly, uh, 1,500 miles one way just to Tokyo. I mean, that's a round-trip mission in, uh, in the European theater to Berlin and back, and that's just one way to Tokyo. A problematic new airplane with engine fires. You know, he's got low morale from his crews. You know, he's got these these terrible weather systems over Japan. I mean, it is really, it is a complex equation that requires someone of LeMay's, you know, mindset to be able to tackle. And that and that and, and, and that's what he he ultimately has to do. He has to overcome all these obstacles to be able to get his bombs on target and bring Japan to its knees before America has to send hundreds of thousands of troops to fight on its shores and its cities, which of course is what he's trying to avoid. Well, that's the thing. And, and, you know, you think about the civil war, the first battle of bull run, you know, people from Washington came out in their finest clothes to watch it. And by the end, of course, it was just a slog with, with yeah. thousands of people getting died. World war one, you had horses and by the end you had machine guns and tanks this war at the beginning, of course, you had the bomber mafia. Uh, Haywood Hensel was one of the, the possum, which I showed this picture yeah. to my wife last night. And I said, guess what his nickname is? And she said, possum. I said, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> he doesn't look like a possum. Even his wife said so. But, um, you know, here he was a planner. But the, the original at the onset of the war, it was like, we're going to avoid civil ca uh, civilian casualties. We can drop 20 bombs and cripple uh, country, you know, like that. And by the end of it, it was literally like, oh. Tokyo's made of paper and wood. We're going to drop napalm on them and kill them all. You know, it was just the whole, but the, because it, you know, like you said, your last book rampage, you saw what happened in Manila with the Japanese Marines killing nearly a hundred thousand 
uh, uh, civilians and so forth. So by the end of it, the killing of civilians, unfortunately, the war had gotten so absolutely brutal at that point. You know, you're right. They had to do something or it would have been we were going to have to send in a million troops and the casualties would have been off the charts. Exactly. And that's what, you know, American commanders and American civilian leaders, I mean, they're looking, you know, they're looking first and foremost to save American lives. I mean, that is their goal is how do we bring the Japanese down to the need to the knees, force them to surrender while saving as many American lives as possible. And of course, you know, Tokyo was one of those where, you know, they didn't really have the zoning like we have today, where you would put all your industry in one area and your residential housing in a, in a different, you know, they just intermix everything. Yeah. So, and they depended on this cottage industry of people, you know, these small home factories to produce, you know, um, rifle triggers and, you know, pens for grenades and whatnot. So, of course, that just opened up their, their, um, their you know, dense residential areas to attack. And LeMay took advantage of that. And, it, and you're absolutely right. You know, they had 135,000 people per square mile. I mean, incredible density, 10 times what you would find in a, in a typical American city. You know, and, and, and homes made out of wood and paper without big, wide boulevards and parks that might serve as fire breaks. I mean, so it really, in the eyes of American war planners, Tokyo was a tinderbox just ready to be burned. It was amazing. 1923, they had one of the strongest earthquakes, I guess, of all time. It's amazing that thing may have lasted up to 10 minutes. Uh, but it caused <laughs> fires and killed over 100,000 people. And they did add a few fire breaks and everything, but they were not. they were just woefully prepared. That's what you do really – number one, the Kirkus Review is really good. Um, I'm going to put that out on social media so that folks can see that at Marshall Ramsey on my Twitter. Um, but it, you. You, they talk, they say that you do a really good job telling the story even-handedly, and you do. And one of the ways you do that, of course, is you do it through the, the histories of the peop- the survivors on the ground. And, and I was talking to you a little bit on Twitter about this a little bit earlier. The thing about your writing, and I've always liked it, is – you know, you're going da 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 da, reading through the thing, and all of a sudden you'll just drop some bomb at the very end of the paragraph that just guts you. And this one's one right here. One of the survivors said, "I wondered how I would apologize to my husband for burning my ch- children to death." Yeah, no, Oof. it's gut wrenching stuff. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And you know, when I was working on the book, I was really adamant. I wanted to be able to tell the Japanese perspective of what it was like because you know you hear about oh, there's this terrible firestorm in Tokyo, but I really I wanted to be able to put the reader there. I mean, what is a firestorm like? I mean, you know, where temperatures inside that literally can get as hot as 2,800 degrees. I mean, that's hot enough to, like, literally melt concrete. I mean, we're sliding boards and school playgrounds warped. Where you know, coins in people's pockets fuse together. And so, unfortunately, uh, you know, there are a fair amount of survivors in Tokyo and I was able to interview a number of them. I went over and spent time doing research there, looking at Japanese oral histories, things that had, you know, uh, sort of be able to capture that side of it. Because I do think that's a really, you know, as historians now, enough time has passed. You know, we need to be able to look looking at these stories from all 360 degrees, you know, every perspective that we can find. And, and I wanted to sort of do that and marry them all together into this one narrative of this faithful mission of March 9th, 1945. The, you have this in the book. It's, this is from the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey from March 1947. So this is directly after the war. It said the raid on March 10th was clearly one of the greatest tragedies in history. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, 16 square miles of Tokyo burned up in the span of about six hours. 
but 105,000 men, women, and children were killed. I mean, it's really, you know, and it's one of those stories that, that, that people forget. You know, I mean, you think of like, when you think of, you know, air warfare and horror, you think of Dresden, right? I mean, that's the, we all, that's kind of the pop culture association with that. And, and Dresden was about twenty five to 35,000 people were killed there. Uh, or you think of the atomic attacks, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, I mean, the firebombing in Tokyo initially killed more people than Hiroshima. Uh, I mean, and, but yet it just gets completely overshadowed um, when people think back on, the, on America's air campaign. The Japanese, and, uh, yeah, the Japanese, uh, you know, but at that point, like I said, they've been being fed through their through their media, through their news, through the propaganda, through the government, basically. Yeah. Uh, they thought they were probably, they knew they weren't winning because they were starving, you know, at that point. Yeah. But, but I mean, the naval blockade, the submarines, they had done their job. There was, I mean, they were, ha- they were struggling at that point. But, oh, yeah. but by the time LeMay came and started doing the firebombing, that kind of broke it. Yeah. Cause you know, that's the, I mean, and, and, that, and, and also that really kind of paves the way because I mean, I, I, there was a lot of concern in the U S too, is like, how would the American public react to, you know, after all these years of precision bombing and high altitude, you know, pinpoint bombs, how would the American public react to a swap in tactics to just starting to burn down Japanese cities? And, and that's really, so the, the firebombing of Tokyo in a lot of ways is kind of a, a like a trial balloon for public sentiment. And, uh, and, and, and there was no, you know, there was no real pushback to that. And that, that really kind of serves as a green light for LeMay, who then begins this whole campaign. So by the time we get to Hiroshima and Nagasaki several months later, you know, he's already burned up about 64 cities. And so, you know, Japan at that point, as you noted, I mean, the submarine blockade had cut off valuable imports. I mean, not just fuel and, and things that were needed for the war machines, but also food. I mean, people don't realize, but Japan is pretty much a materially bankrupt nation. I mean, they have to import um, rice, even. You know, they can't even grow enough of their staple food product there for their own population. So, you know, they they had already suffered greatly from there. And then, then comes the whole firebombing campaign after that. And so by the time we get to the end of the war with the atomic attacks, which, you know, everybody tends to think about and remember, Japan's already defeated at this point. I mean, they've they've suffered, you know, the the submarine blockade, they suffered the firebombing and, uh, and, and whatnot. So it's a, um, that's kind of the coup de grace, so to speak. I, I've talked to several Marines that fought and they said, Marshall, you know, they, they were older, obviously they were in their nineties. So they were, they were open, very open about their experience, but they just said, you just honestly don't understand the hatred that we had for each other in the Pacific yeah. war. He, he said, he said, it was racial. I'm not quite sure what it was, but it was just, it was different. How does that feel? I mean, seriously, you put this much time, effort, you go through the whole editing process, which takes forever. And then that box finally comes to your house and you pull it out and you actually get to see your book and you're like, Oh, it's done. And then you start getting the reviews. Um, well, it's, it's, you, you, you quite, you're just terrified. To be honest <laughs> with you, because, like, you literally put years of work into this project and then you're throwing it out there for the public and the media to either, you know, like it or hate it. Or, so, you know, it's a, uh, you know, you're, you're just a basket case. I mean, to be honest with you, at least I am. I, uh, because it is, man, it's such a labor of love. I mean, you, have, you know, in my case, like I toil, I've, I've got this office, you know, this, 10 by 10 office, you know, where I spend all my days alone going through all these documents, trying to craft this story, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year. And then you're finally done and you're sort of bringing this out and you're like, I hope it's good. I hope people like it. I hope they respond to it. So it's, uh, it's kind of a, uh, 
it's exciting when you get the good reviews in, but you know, there's a, there's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of nervousness, man. And I've been doing this for a while, but I still get that way. I was, in fact, I saw recently on, on uh, Twitter, I followed Stephen King, you know, and of course I've read Stephen King for decades and decades. And he has a new book in here to come out and he was talking about all the butterflies he had. And so I was like, man, if, if that guy still gets nervous, I guess it's just, uh, you know, I'm in good company. <laughs> yeah. His book on writing, by the way, is one of the best books ever on, on the creative process. It's just a fantastic book. On that. You know, when I, st- when I started my last journalism job, my editor made me read that book. Really? I mean, he gave me a copy of it and he said, you need to read this. This is the best book on writing as well. So I've got a copy of it right here in my bookshelf. But you're absolutely right. Phenomenal. Let me, let me ask you this. Uh, you're a Pulitzer finalist. Where do you keep your letter? Just out of curiosity. Um, I've actually got it here in my office, and in fact, I, I need to do something with it. I need to like frame it. You know, <laughs> mine's, like, mine's in an mine are in an envelope. I mean, in a folder in a desk. So yeah, I'm, not really, I'm just kind of curious. I always love no, it. I, need, I totally need to. Yeah, I need to like frame it and like put it somewhere where people will see it. <laughs> not just in my desk drawer. It's such it an incredible really honor. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, yours. Of course, <laughs> yours was so well deserved because I mean, Target Tokyo is such a good book. I'll be honest with you, and I, I think I may like this book a little bit better. And and I love the do little story. And I think the thing I loved about your book was that you told the Chinese perspective too. That I think a lot of people gloss over. Oh yeah, by the way, half a million people got killed uh, because of that raid. And so you did such a great job telling that. But yeah, no, the the Pulitzer finals thing is so funny because it's like such a cool honor. But the, that what you actually receive is like, oh yeah, this is the person who beat you. Congratulations. <laughs> I know exactly. The letter does. It's like, you know, but but it's still such an honor. I mean, here you're getting a letter oh, yeah. from the president of Columbia and all. It's still such an honor. But uh, but at the same time, you're also like, I didn't win. Oh, I know. You now, I bet now when you watch the Academy Awards, you now understand why those people get funny looks on their faces when their name isn't called. So, but exactly. uh, I, I'm hoping that they rectify their errors and, and give you a Pulitzer for this one because it's fantastic on that. I'm also very excited about you coming to Jackson and getting to meet you officially in person. I feel like I know you, but um, it'll be great. I just, I think you're going to have a good time down here. Well, you know, it's funny because we've been corresponding and chatting for like 10 years now, I think. The Doolittle book came out, what, 15, I guess seven years now. Yeah. You reached out to me after you read that. So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I'm super excited to come, man. I'm super excited to be in Mississippi and, you know, get to meet everybody and, uh, and just for a great Saturday, too. So I love book festivals. Yeah, and I'm so glad you just didn't tell the organizers, uh, hey, you know, that Ramsey guy's a stalker, and uh, I really just <laughs> don't want to be around him. kind of scares me a little bit, actually. So, uh, he, no, I mean, he's a great friend, actually. That's what I'm, <laughs> I'd love to come down and hang out. No, I think Absolutely. we're, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, there's just so many great – and like I said, what's so good about it is that – it's not a dry history in any sense of the word because there's just it's such a fascinating story on the progression on how we got to to that that point and you know Curse LeMay is such an interesting Haywood you know Hanson is such a such an interesting person Martin Sheridan I, this is the little sub story and I think we got about fifteen seconds the Boston Globe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the reporter who actually went on the raid, and we're going to tell that on Saturday. I'm not going to tell it on the air right now, so you're going to have to come to the book festival to hear that little part because I want you to tell that story because uh, the guy literally, uh, it's just such a great sub story that you threw in there, and that's what I love about the book so much. Oh, and that was a ton of fun. Yeah, people will love to hear that. That's a neat story as well. So that'll be great. Well, good deal. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. When is it officially launched? I know you can pre-order right now. 
Yes, yeah, September 6th. So, and we'll have copies there uh, on Saturday, so people will be able to get it before it's even uh, officially out yet. Oh wow! So, uh, well, I've got it. I've got my yeah. I actually want to get a hard copy version. I've got the paperback version that I've folded all the pages and written in and so forth for this. So, but uh, I, I want to get. We you... should be getting the hard the hardback should be coming to you any day now in the mail. So oh, that's fantastic! Sending one out. So yeah, keep an eye on your mailbox. Well, I'm definitely going to get you to autograph it. So that'll be very cool. All right. Absolutely. Well, Looking forward to it. See you Friday. All right. Cool. All right. Thanks, Marshall. Well, thanks, James. Appreciate it. We want to thank you for listening and thank our guests today, authors Kevin Marr and James M. Scott, for joining us. And if you'd like to hear this show again, and I think you would, you can listen to it on uh, our podcast app or any of your favorite podcast app out there or MPB Public Media app. All kinds of choices. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. is produced by Jermaine Flood. Join us next week, that's right, next Monday at 10 a.m. for another great conversation This is MPB Think Radio. Y'all have an awesome week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.